3: Welcome to the show. It's Wednesday. It's 4 o'clock. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand on for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. All we need you to do is to provide the phone call. You can dial 210 340 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always on this cold day, uh, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. I've uh, got a couple of things going on tonight. I'm going to be teaching, finishing 2 Kings chapter 15. And um, tomorrow, of course, Thursday, the Date Day show, Paula will be live in studio with me on the Date Day program. I have no idea what she's going to talk about, but it's always interesting. And uh, if you want to be encouraged... Give us a phone call. That's at four o'clock tomorrow, on AM six thirty. The Word. Well, let's get to some questions while we wait for your phone calls. Here is a question from our email inbox from Juan. He says, Pastor Ron, have you seen the show The Chosen? There's a part with Jesus singing, dancing, and drinking wine at a wedding. As Christians, is it okay to drink and dance at family celebrations? Uh, if you've seen the show, would you recommend it? Is it biblical? Uh, one, I have seen it. Now, I'm um, through uh, season three, part two. So I think season three has just gotten started. And uh, I watch it on, on YouTube after it comes out. So I've seen the two first uh, sessions. Uh, and let me tell you, I, I think it's Okay. Um, there's some things in it that I have a bit of a problem with, but it's nothing that's really serious. A couple of, of, of those ideas, um, you know, they, they take some real liberties. Now, remember, this is uh, a production, and they're taking dramatic license, creative license, and I think that's okay. Um, but, but, for example, Matthew is on the autism spectrum, um uh peter gets in trouble at the very beginning because he's a uh, a gambling addict and is always getting in trouble so those are unnecessary things but i think so far one the thing that's bothered me the most about it is the uh like in the preparation for the sermon on the mount toward the end of of season 2 um uh, jesus was rehearsing and asking matthew for help and they were almost acting it out and and of course jesus didn't need uh, to rehearse. Uh, he only did what he saw his father do. He only said what he heard his father say. So Jesus walked by the Spirit. So trying to humanize him in that sense, I think, uh, is not constructive. But beyond that, I think the show is pretty good um, um, and and I don't really have any objections. Regarding the part where he's singing, dancing and drinking wine at a wedding, um, it, we have to remember the, the Jewish culture that he was in Uh, Water was not really good water in that time in the world. Uh, And so wine was a staple at a Jewish meal, at Jewish weddings. Uh, Wine would be there, and so of course Jesus would be there. And the dancing certainly isn't the kind of dancing that we do. It was Jewish uh, celebratory dancing, and um, uh, it was very common when Jews got together to do those kind of things. So I don't think we can make that application uh, in a current wedding Uh, for us. Now, relative to your question, is it okay to drink and dance at a family celebration? Of course, it's okay to dance. We just had a wedding this past Sunday afternoon, and there was dancing there, and that was fine. Certainly no drinking. Um, And I don't think Christians ought ever to drink. Um, and, And while I realize some people think, well, that's not in the Bible, um, the idea, though, is we're compromising our witness when we're doing what unbelievers are doing at weddings and parties. I think we're compromising our witness. So that's just my opinion, One, I don't think it's ever okay for a Christian to drink. And if they do, I think they ought not to drink publicly for fear of compromising their wedding. But to go to a wedding and, and there uh, often are open bars at weddings uh, to participate in that, I think, is just really, really a compromise. Um, people say the Bible doesn't say you can't drink, and they're right. But while all things are permissible, not all things Paul says are beneficial. And I think, uh, Juan, that that, that's that's part of it that you ought to refrain from. Dancing is fine. Just make sure it's not um, anything that's embarrassing. So I hope that helps, Juan. Thank you for cussing. Um, regarding recommending the show. I didn't add that, recommending the show. Um, yeah, I, I could recommend to somebody, especially somebody who's grounded in Scripture. Here's a question from, oh, got a phone call. Let's go there. I got Reuben on line one. Reuben, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
4: Yeah, bless you, Pastor Ron. How are Thank you doing you. today, sir? I'm,
3: I'm doing well, Reuben. Thanks.
4: That's good. That's good. I have a question for you. Uh, Paul. Uh, was he rich? Like before he gave his life to Christ, was was he a man of wealth? And, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you why I'm asking this. Uh, was he a man of wealth? Um, did he own homes? I, I think he was a tent maker, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, the only reason I'm asking is because in Philippians three, verse seven and eight, this is what he says. And maybe I'm looking at it in the wrong context, but he says. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Mm -hmm. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ruben, great question. Paul, in that specific passage, he's talking more about his identity in uh, his accomplishments as a jew uh, very legalistic righteousness, faultless, he said, uh, advancing in Judaism far beyond his years, so that's not a reference to money now, we know Paul was his family was a man of means, Paul was a Roman citizen, and the way people became Roman citizens is is that and this would have been appropriate for paul's father. Uh, he would have bought his citizenship, so Paul no doubt grew up in a privileged home a home where money was not an issue, uh, and he would live far above the standard of of others. But, of course, when he got saved, uh, all of that went away, and uh, he lost, when it says in in that Philippians passage, uh, I've lost everything, I consider it all um, uh, nothing compared to what he had now, he's simply indicating that uh, what he's doing for Christ and the will of God, um, that means everything to him. So after his salvation experience, uh, Paul was cut off from his source of wealth, his family even. No doubt Paul was married and might even have had children, and uh, he would have lost his family when when he converted. But uh, on the whole, he says at the end, I, I, I've lost nothing. Everything that the world says I've lost, all of that means nothing to me uh, in light of the glory of serving the Lord. So thank you, Reuben. I appreciate the the call very much let's go to alex from san antonio on line two. alex thank you for holding you on the air
5: hello ron uh so i've been listening to your show for quite a while but this is the first time that i've called in so uh i really appreciate your call um your show and thank you for taking my call
3: uh, thanks for calling
5: so uh i've been reading through first samuel and um i'm right now i'm at first Samuel chapter 30, um, and that is the account of uh, David um, with his followers being away from his encampment. Um, The Amalekites come in, they raid his encampment, um, they take all the women and children and all the livestock, and um, uh, David needs to make a decision whether he will um, uh, kind of attack the Amalekites and see if he can get all of his, uh, all of his um, goods and um, families back for his uh, tribe and followers. And um, he uh, calls the priest, and he asks the priest for an ephod. And I was unfamiliar with this term, so I looked it up, and I found that it can mean one of two things. Um, it can be the ceremonial dress that the high priest wears, or it can be an idol. Um, and based on the context of the text, uh, it didn't sound like it was the dress it sounded like it would be an idol and i can't imagine um david like using an idol uh to basically you know ask god uh this question if he should attack the amalekites so i was wondering what your insights were about that
3: yeah thank you i can i can do that alex um the, the ephod in this case is the the ephod that the the that uh, the high priest would wear and in all likelihood, he's seeking the will of God in the Uman and the Thumen, uh, Urim and Thumen. I always get confused when I say those things together. And, of course, we know that David wasn't uh, seeking an idol. David was a man after God's own heart. He had his difficulties, but that certainly wasn't one of them. Uh, this is one of those passages of Scripture where David was in a, 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 a horrible Situation, because of his own disobedience. So, uh, what he's what he's talking about here is um, I, I need to find out what I'm going to do. David um, has if, if there's consequences to ungodly behavior, and that's exactly what's happening here. Disobedience always has severe consequences, and uh, David certainly, even a man after God's own heart was no exception. So, no, what he would have been doing, uh, seeking the ephod, would, would have been seeking the will of God. And the question is easy. Should we go get him or shouldn't we go get him? And, of course, we know that uh, the rescue was accomplished. Great question, Alex. Thank you very much. And I always appreciate when people have been listening for a long time, uh, finally are moved to call. Great, great, great. Um, neat passage of Scripture there in 1 Samuel, by the way. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question that was just called in from Mark in Austin. Uh, what happens to people who are blasphemous toward God, Mark? If they if they die in that condition, I mean, if they're not born again Christians and they're blasphemous toward God, then then uh, they're going to spend eternity in hell. That's for sure. And and uh, you know, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the one unforgivable sin, is dying. Uh, in a condition where you're separated from God by sin. In other words, Jesus died for sins. If you don't ask for forgiveness and surrender your heart to him and die in that condition, there's no remedy for sin. Uh, If you're talking about people who are just blasphemous with their mouth, a lot of us, a lot of people are. And, um, you know, we take God's name so lightly that we, we say, oh, my God, all the time, or Lord this or Lord that. Um, but, But people that are truly blasphemous are blaspheming from a heart that's in rebellion against God and their destiny, apart from surrendering to Jesus Christ, asking forgiveness for their sins, their destiny is already determined. So God will be patient toward them. He will keep knocking on the door of their heart. Uh, but Mark, um, uh, their fate is already sealed. Now, if you're if you're asking for somebody you know, this is time to pray for somebody. When somebody's heart is so hard that they can blaspheme God uh, with their mouth, uh, they're really, really in a dangerous circumstance. Mark, so um, speaking ill of God, blaspheming God, is not the unforgivable sin. Only if you die in that condition. I hope that answers your question. Mark. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Marvin. Marvin says, what does it mean exactly that we're made in the image of God? Good question, Marvin. A couple of things, primarily. Uh, it doesn't mean we look like God, but but it means that we're, um, we're, we were created in the heart and in the mind of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are his, God's workmanship, uh, the, the Greek word there is poema and it means that we're sort of God's expression of beauty. So when he made us, he, he, the, the best thing he ever did was, was humans. And he made us in his image and that means two things primarily. First, it means that we have the capacity to choose. Just like God in heaven chooses, we made in his image have the capacity to choose. We can use our free will to choose God or choose to rebel against him. Now, if we rebel against him, we can't uh, um, um, miss the consequences of that choice, but God gives us the freedom to choose. He doesn't make anybody following him. So that's the first, is that we're created uh, with free will. We we make a choice. Secondly, it means that we're going to live forever. Once we're born, we breathe Uh, In this world, uh, we come through our mother's womb like Jesus came through his mother's womb. Um, From that point forward, we're eternal. We're going to live somewhere forever. Uh, We'll never die. We'll either live forever with Jesus, we call that heaven, or we'll live forever separated from Jesus, we call that hell. So those are the two things it means that we're made in the image of God. Now, in light of our current world, something that five years ago I never dreamed I would be saying, But it also means we're created in his image, male and female, he created them, it says. So even our sexuality is made in God's image. And that's what makes this transgender movement so insidious. We're attacking the very creation of God, men and women who are made in his will. And we're rebelling against even the most obvious of truths in our world uh they're born, male or female, and now that idea is just um, um, considered silliness, considered hatred in the world that we live in. Uh, so I, I think those three things, Marvin. Primarily the first two, but I think in light of what's going on in our world, we've got to be honest enough to say that that even our sexuality, male and female, He created them uh, in His image. Thank you for the question, Marvin. Here is a caller from uh, San Antonio, Jerry, on line one. Hi, Jerry. How you doing?
2: Hey, I'm wonderful, Pastor Ron. I hope you are as well. You sound good. Thank you. Yeah, this is your Jerry, and I'm finally calling back with uh, <laughs> my other my other questions. Uh, actually, it's kind of a it's kind of a threefold question, so I don't want to take all the time. Would you prefer I just ask one, or should I just kind of slowly put it all out there?
3: As, ask it as quickly and clearly as you can, Jerry.
2: Okay, well, the, the thing is about the Bibles. So, as I've mentioned previously, was raised Catholic, but and I know the Catholics have their own Bible, but you're hard-pressed to find anybody with a Bible at a Catholic Mass. So, I know the Catholic Bible has extra books, Mm -hmm. that the Bible that we use does not have. So that's kind of the first part. And then about the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're pretty much, they tell the same stories is my understanding. Why is John, his book, so different? And I know a lot of it's probably perspective-based. And then the last part of it is what are your thoughts on the chronological Bible? Cause I love the verse by verse that we do, but what are your thoughts on the chronological Bible? I'll take notes, hang up and I'll see you tonight. Thank, Thank you, you so Jimmy. much.
3: Thank you for calling. God bless. Uh, let me do the last one first, because this is one of my uh, little hobby horse pet peeves here. Uh, I'm not a fan of the chronological Bible. I'm not a fan of it. Uh, Because I I believe with all of my heart, Jerry, that God has constructed the Bible in the order. Uh, Part of the fun, if you're a Bible scholar or Bible student, part of the fun is trying to figure out, okay, why is this here? Is this here now? I'll just give you one example In, in Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, he 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 goes back and forth between uh, short-term fulfillment of prophecies and long-term fulfillment of prophecies, and sometimes it'll just be one verse apart, and you've really got to pay attention. So there's a reason the Holy Spirit is constructing uh, the book that way, and and really digging in to find out what it is. Uh, I think is part of the part of the mystery, and I think the chronological Bible sort of takes the uh, the mystery. Out of it and and uh, for example, we, Jerry, you know we're in Second Kings on Wednesday nights, and there's a lot of back and forth between the northern and the southern kingdoms. and I think um, learning the kings, learning the problems that were going on, the things that were going on in the world at the time of the writing, I think those are really important things to dig in. So uh, I'm not a big fan of the chronological Bible,, um, uh, having said that. Uh, there are uh some people who are who, who it makes it easier for them so um i guess that's a matter of personal choice um, the um apocrypha the 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 catholic bible um the catholic bible adds the apocryphal books um they're they're, they're they've never been considered canon by by jews um, in the middle of the Old Testament, the books are inconsistent. Uh, they they in some places contradict what we know uh, are books of the, in the canon of Scripture, and so it's it's clear that those books are not inspired by God. Uh, there there is some interest in those. There is some historical value. The problem is, as you indicated, the Catholics don't read their Bibles. And um, if they're going to read their Bibles at all, they need to read the inspired part. So um, there's never been a, a Jewish manuscript that, that, that held that those books uh, were on the level of Scripture. And, uh, they, of course, the Catholic Church has those books in their Bible to justify some of their non-biblical traditions that have been passed down through the, the generations of time. So I think uh, uh, it's it's it's... There's no value for us uh, in those apocryphal books. Um, You asked about John versus the Synoptic Gospels. Why would they do that? Uh, The Synoptic Gospels were all written in a time pretty close to one another. Um, They were circulating in the early church. Uh, What, what, uh, um, you know, Marcus, Peter's account of the Gospel, uh, Luke's account, Um, was based on investigative research. He was like an investigative reporter. And Matthew, of course, his gospel was the most Jewish of all of the gospels uh, with the purpose of proving that Jesus was the Christ. The key phrase through Matthew is... um, uh, and this was written or this had come to fulfill what was written in the scriptures. And then they'll explain the fulfillment of prophecy. So Matthew, his, his, his goal was to demonstrate that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament. John's gospel was written much, much later, um, maybe as many as uh, 30 years later. And John gives us just a fourth witness from a different perspective. And John's gospel's purpose is to portray Jesus as divine, proving that he is God, the Son, uh, and the Son of God. So that's why John was doing it. John's emphasis on the miracles of Jesus, uh, the, the intimate time in the upper room discourse, uh, that the other gospel writers don't go so it's just just the holy spirit through the apostle john providing us with additional details and additional information. So we, we need to remember all of the gospels have a purpose. They're written from different perspectives, but the synoptics of course shared information and because Peter uh, and uh, was was uh, behind Mark's gospel uh, Matthew walked with Jesus, and of course, Luke was interviewing the people who walked with Jesus. His was to demonstrate all the things that Jesus began to do, and teach. Um, um, so they would have borrowed from one another, but their emphasis there there's emphasis on different details. No contradictions, but emphasis on different details. Uh, Mark's gospel portrays Jesus as the servant, uh, Matthew as the Christ, and as I said. Uh, Peter's uh, account in Mark, uh, that was portrayed Jesus as, as uh, the servant Luke portrayed him as, as human. So, uh, the God-man. And then John, of course, presents him as the son of God, God the Son. Good question, Jerry. Thank you very, very much. we get less than two minutes for this one. Let's go to a quick question. Uh, Albert says, uh, if we grieve the Holy Spirit, does he leave us? No, he never leaves us. Remember, Albert, we're promised that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He will be with us until the end of the age, Jesus said. So he doesn't leave us, but we basically disconnect the power. That's what we're doing. When we quench the Holy Spirit or grieve the Holy Spirit, we're basically turning off the power. And because we're walking in the flesh rather than in the spirit, we don't have access to that power. But he doesn't leave us. He's just sort of like dormant grass in the wintertime. Uh, It's there, but there's no growth. Well, the same thing with the Holy Spirit. He's there because you're sealed with the deposit, uh, the Holy Spirit that guarantees our inheritance. But uh, if we we rebel, if we're not obedient, if there's sin that we allow to get between us and God, um, then um, there's no power that's available to us. Until and unless we repent, uh, truly repent, and ask for forgiveness, and then that power is instantly restored. Good question, Albert. Well, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes.
1: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
3: Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585. Uh, remember, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the show. And uh, tonight I'm going to be teaching out of Second Kings chapter 15 uh, We're also going to have a Friday night service, and then we will have two Christmas services, Christmas morning services, at nine and eleven on Sunday, Christmas Sunday. I'm excited yeah. because, um, you know, this is only the third time in our 27 years here that Christmas has fallen on a Sunday, and the first two times it's always such a blessing to actually have church service and be with church family um, uh, for Christmas. So I'm really excited about. Doing that, And we're going to be doing some baby dedications, not individuals, but a bunch of people are going to want their kids dedicated. I just thought it would be a really neat thing to, to be able to say we're going to dedicate babies on Christmas, the day we celebrate Jesus being born as a baby. Good question. Hey, here's a question anonymously from our mo- mobile app. Uh, it says, in some versions of the Bible, a woman named Lilith is mentioned in Isaiah, and she is suggested to be an evil succubus whatever that is any thoughts thank you and god bless you i'm going to kind of hold this one until friday anonymous not cuz i'm trying to avoid it but but there's 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 no version of the bible that i can find that mentions lilith i know that she uh is um prominent or more prominent in catholic tradition but there is no woman named lilith um in isaiah or anywhere else in the bible and it's just nothing more than Tradition, but I'm going to do a little bit more digging um, just to be sure that uh, that my answer is correct, and I'll I'll get to that on Friday after Paula is there. Here is a question. This one from Kenneth. He says, Pastor Ron, since there is no sadness in heaven, how could God or Jesus have been sad? Is that a contradiction, Kenneth? Jesus was sad because he was on Earth. Jesus wasn't sad because he was in heaven. Um, and I think we also have to realize that, that, that in, in in heaven, where there be no more tears, no more pain, no more sadness, that's yet future. That hasn't been accomplished yet. So um, Jesus was sad because his heart was broken. Just imagine what it was like for Jesus. Um, now, we know he wept. But for Jesus to be um, questioned, interrogated by the religious leaders who he knew were plotting his death. He came to his own, and his own received him not. That had to break his heart. He looked over at Jerusalem, knowing what would befall Jerusalem because of their rejection. And it broke his heart. He wept bitterly. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus when he saw all of the pain, people that he loved. He saw them grieving over the loss of Lazarus, and he wept reason he would have wept is simple. He would have thought this is the way I created this world to be. When he would walk around and see demon-possessed people, do you think that just broke his heart, tore him up? Of course it did. He didn't create Lucifer to become the devil. He didn't create the angels who rebelled uh, in Lucifer's fall to, to be demons. And it breaks his heart. But to see leprosy, to see um demon possession when 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 seven demons were cast out of Mary Magdalene uh, what joy that would have brought him and yet he was always encountering demon possessed people so um he was sad because of the things here because of the the way things were um in heaven for you and for me Kenneth there will be no sadness no more tears no more pain um no illness uh so not a contradiction at all thank you for the question. Joseph wants to know, was Paul referring to his life before he got saved in Romans chapter 7? Joseph, no, Uh, he wasn't. He was referring to his day-to-day life. He was referring to the struggle that he had uh, with the flesh versus being in the spirit. Uh, we know that Paul struggled with um, thinking maybe too highly of himself. He said in 2 Corinthians 12 that, that the thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, was permitted by God to keep him from being conceited because of the surpassingly great revelations that he had. Um, Paul, I think, struggled with with, with sarcasm at times and, and getting angry. Um, I wish they would go all the way and emasculate themselves. He says in writing to the church, the churches in Galatia, um, what you started in the spirit, you're going to finish in the flesh. So Paul, I think, uh, sometimes was right on that edge where where the flesh would would be in danger of taking over, and Romans seven is simply a, a one person account of what we all go through every day battling our flesh, and that's what Paul says that that, that battle is. Um, the nature is such that he wants to do one thing and his flesh um, does something else. And what he doesn't want to do, that's what he finds himself doing. And he comes to the conclusion, oh wretched man that I am, uh, who can deliver me from this body of death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ. So Paul was describing his everyday life. Now, it doesn't mean that he would go out and do fleshy things, but just the the everyday temptations and struggles that every human being has always had. You know, Paul also writes, in writing to the church at Rome, uh in, in the earlier verse, he said, there's none good, not even one, no one who seeks God. Uh, in Romans chapter 3, he says, we, we all sin continually and are continually falling short of the glory of God. And I think Paul was frustrated by that. He wanted to be more like Jesus. He wanted to be closer to Jesus. And Joseph, that's the same struggle you go through and the same struggle I go through. You know, I want to think like Jesus. I want to love people the way Jesus wants him to be loved. I want to believe the best about people. I want my faith to be strong always and never fail. Uh, and yet, I, I'm, I struggle with this fleshy body of mine. And the same thing is true for all of us and paul was was no exception, so uh, I know there are some people that like to think that we can achieve sinless perfection, and the apostle paul certainly was was one of those people so I've heard people say that was before he got saved um I've heard others explain it away by saying he wasn't talking about himself, but he was just speaking um uh in the third er, in, in the first person um empathizing with others. No, this was Paul's day-to-day life, just like it's yours and mine. Very good question. Anonymous says, My mother tells me she's spiritual and not religious. How should I respond to her? You know, Anonymous, I, I hope your relationship with your mom is good because I'm presuming it is. But I would say, Well, Mom, tell me what that means. What does it mean that you're spiritual? And usually what it means is that, well, I think about spiritual things, but I'm just not into religion or, uh, and, and, and basically these are people who are in the flesh who are trying to justify what they're doing in the flesh. So uh, I would ask her, um, have a serious conversation with her and say, Mom, you're, you, you're, you're saying that you're spiritual. Tell me what that means. And then you can ask her, what spirit is it? And you're going to get a, a view, her, her perspective on sin. And usually when somebody tells me, well, I'm a spiritual person, it means they want to keep sinning and they're rationalizing that it's okay because they are a quote unquote spiritual person. So because it's your mother, the stakes are high. Be kind and certainly be respectful, but don't let statements like that go unchallenged. Don't argue, but don't let statements go unchallenged. Those are are, are often open doors. Clearly, you're praying for your mom. Uh, those are often open doors that will, will generate discussion. And it'll give you the opportunity not only to share who Jesus is and what he's done, but, but it'll give you an opportunity to share your own testimony. And, uh, you know, testimonies have power. So that's how I would do it. I've, I've gotten to the point, and this is for everybody in the audience. I've gotten to the point that when people say dumb things, well, everybody knows there's contradictions in the Bible. I never let stuff like that just go. Okay, name one. Nobody can. Nobody can. Everybody knows there's contradictions. Oh, this isn't the word of God. Tell me what you mean. Oh, I, I don't believe that Jesus was God. Whatever it is, challenge those, those statements with the, 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 the prayerful hope that they will open conversation. And that's what we really need to be focused on is conversation with people like this who are lost. Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven six three zero K S L R. Here's another anonymous question. I'm laughing as I read it. Um, this person says, "Why do so many Christians act like jerks? It's hard to believe in Jesus based on the behavior of Christians." You know, um, I think it was Gandhi who said, uh, um, "I quite, I'm quite fond of your Christ." But I'm not too crazy about your Christians. And and Christians have always been the biggest argument against Christianity. Um, but, but let me just answer the question for you directly. Why do so many Christians act like jerks? Because my flesh is ugly. And when you see Christians acting like jerks, it's because they're in the flesh rather than the spirit. Don't blame God for that. It's not hard to believe in Jesus. Find somebody who's really walking with Jesus and watch them, follow them, and you're going to find a whole new experience, Anonymous. So don't just blank it. I mean, this is kind of a dishonest criticism. I could say, well, why are so many unsaved people such jerks? And your your response would probably be something, like, well, well not everybody's a jerk. There are some really nice people. And you'd be right because there's some really nice people that aren't saved. Well, in the same way, there is a whole bunch of people that are Christians that love God with all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and they do their best to follow Jesus, and they do their best to be obedient, and they do their best to trust him, and they do their best to love people. Of course, loving people requires that we tell them the truth, and the reality is that there are a lot of Christians who act like jerks because their flesh is dominant, Rather than walking in the spirit, they're walking in the flesh. And I want to say it again, flesh is ugly. It always is. You know, Anonymous, one of my normal prayers uh, in mornings is, is, Lord, keep me close to you. Because I'm aware now, Anonymous, I've been a pastor for 27 and a half years, a Christian for 31 years. And um, my flesh is not one bit better today than it was 31 years ago when I got saved flesh stinks flesh is ugly flesh is jerky and so if I walk in this in the in the spirit then I have the power over my flesh but if I walk in the flesh just the fact that I'm a christian for all these years or a pastor for all these years doesn't mean my flesh is going to be attractive to anyone so I'm 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 that close to being the same jerk that I always was before I got saved. Just that close. And that's why we have to especially be on guard against our flesh. And the way we do that, of course, is to be in conversation with the Lord, to to uh walk with the Lord. I say just be with Jesus all the time. And to be in the Word of God. Feed the spirit rather than the flesh. And in that process we are able then to, to um, overcome our flesh but the truth is when you see a Christian acting like a jerk or a jerkette uh, it's because that's who we are in the flesh and Jesus has given us victory over that and yet there's still a whole bunch of Christians that don't understand it but as I said a minute ago the same thing is exactly true of unbelievers there's some really nice people and there's a whole bunch of jerks that's the human condition Here's a question from David. How do we stand for Christ with our kids when literally all of their friends get to do stuff like social media that we don't allow? David, just remember how proud God is of you for this. This is where this is our job as parents, by the way. We've been given stewardship over our children. Our job isn't to, to let them do what other parents let their kids do. Our job is to train our children up in the 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 fear of god the, the the nurture and the admonition of god to raise them knowing that god loves them and that if they get any distance between them and the lord their flesh is going to consume them the enemy in this world is going to win them over so as a parent it's your job it's your job to supervise your children Tell them what they can do and can't do. You know, I, uh, I, and and it, one of my frustrations here, David, is that parents don't listen to me. Even, even the parents here at our church, they don't listen to me with regard to social media. And here's the the one thing that I, I tell them, and and uh, you know, every parent thinks, well, not with my kid. It's different with my. I can trust my kid. If your kid is not in the Word, then he or she is going to be won over by the brainwashing of this world. It's that simple. There's no way to stand against the overwhelming brainwashing, persuasion tactics that are are predominant on social media. And believe me, all of the giant tech companies know this. Their algorithms are written to capitalize on this. And so your job is to say to your children, this is what you can do and what you can't do. You know, I've said on this program, David, I've said it to our church even more. Uh, Any parent that allows their child access to their phone in their room with the door closed is opening the door for the devil to destroy their kids. Pornography, um, uh, brainwashing tactics, um, the the peer pressure on social media is enormous. and, And parents have to learn to say no period, parents need to learn to say no. We, we've actually given in to a generation of children that believe they cannot survive without a telephone. And yet generations of kids have been doing that forever and ever and ever. So, moms and dads, it's your time to stand for Jesus. And if your kid doesn't like it, and they may not, um, then you understand your job isn't to make them like you. Your job is to Let them see who Jesus is. That means your children need to go to church with you, whether they want to or not. It means when they get too busy and other things, extracurricular activities, get in the way of church, you got to say, no, 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 priorities in this family. Priorities in this family. You're going to church, and then you can do these other things. We've just got to demonstrate who Jesus is and how important he is and he has to remain first and foremost in our lives. And, and when moms and dads start um, sort of shortcutting that whole process by allowing worldly stuff to creep in, uh, you're going to lose your kids. It's that simple. And Jesus, David, for you is proud when you stand, regardless of their friends what they're able to do. This is who we are. And I've got a bunch of people in my church who have been doing that all along, their kids going through uh, school and and all the way through junior high and high school. And uh, they're supervised closely, and that's the way it ought to be. Your children are simply not emotionally or psychologically ready for the onslaught of this world um, and the things that the world is going to introduce them to as teenagers. They're just not ready for that yet. So you keep standing for Jesus, David, he's pleased. We need to stop trying to be our kids' friends, be their parents. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, can a man whose pre-Christ life... I'm going to laugh again. Can a man whose pre-Christ life was really terrible ever be a pastor or church leader since they can't be above reproach? Well, anonymous, I'm one of those people. So the answer to your question is yes. We can really be a pastor or a church leader um, and remember when the man is born again, the old is gone and the new has come. Um, February twenty fifth, 1991, when I got saved, my slate was wiped clean. And, and, And I've lived my life in an above reproach manner. That doesn't mean I haven't messed up. Because we all do, but the the pastor or church leader who messes up is quick to run into the presence of God and say, "Oh God, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I hate that I just did that." And if we if we ask for forgiveness, First John one nine says that we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. So certainly, um, no sin that occurred before you were saved w- could ever keep you from being a pastor of a church. Let me tell you a quick story. I don't have anybody on the phone waiting. So um, uh, one of the, the men, is a relative uh, by marriage, uh, one of the men who was instrumental in leading me to Christ, prayed for me for a long time. Um, uh, when I got saved, uh, he he and another guy were doing some mentoring, kind of answering my questions. I was really curious. And uh, I was six months old in the Lord, and, and, and I know the Lord spoke to my heart about being a pastor. And um, so I, I went to this guy, and I said to him, I said, let me ask you a question. I, I, I really think I know what God wants me to do. And he said, oh, well, that's great. What does he want you to do? And I said, I think he's called me to be a pastor. And this guy just laughed at me, Anonymous. I mean, he just laughed. And he looked at me and said, hey, forget that. With the way you've lived your life, you're lucky God even saved you, but you can never be a pastor. Just forget about that. And of course, 27 and a half years later, he was wrong and Jesus was right. So, um, you know, that's kind of worldly thinking that, that somebody's disqualified for something they did before Christ. Now, let me also add this. There are things that I could do that would disqualify me from ever being a pastor again. I certainly don't want to do those things, but better men than me have fallen. And um, uh, I know a lot of those people and have shared in their heartache and the, and the heartache that they've caused. Um, but, but nothing that we do pre-Christ would ever keep us away from answering the call of God. It's a good question, Anonymous. Thank you. Benjamin wants to know about prayer. He says, is it more of a dialogue or a monologue? Um, Benjamin, I think it can be both, but um, um, consider a dialogue. Jesus is our friend. Uh, again, here at Calvary Chapel, we say just be with Jesus. Uh, it would be rude to just talk and not let him have any input. So in this sense, it's a dialogue. Um, but there are times when you're going to be pouring your heart out and it becomes more of a monologue and that's just the Holy Spirit prompting your heart. So I think... It ought to be a monologue when we're repenting of sin. We should take full responsibility, making no excuses. Oh, God, I blew it. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And then if we can be quiet, then he has the opportunity to say, "Um, let's get busy. Let's get started all over again. But remember, prayer altogether, Benjamin, is simply you talking to God. It's not some mystical thing that we do. It's a wonderful thing that we do and there is some mysticism to it. But Jesus did the best he could to simplify it. He said he calls us his friend. He's not ashamed to call us his brother. Consider that for a moment. So you talk to Jesus just like you would a friend or a brother, an elder brother. And dialogue is always a way to do it. And when I'm walking with the Lord... I'm, I'm hoping that I'm giving him the opportunities to, to uh, uh, cut in and, and, and speak to my heart. He knows that's what I want daily. So, uh, Lord, I, here, here with Thanksgiving, I'm making these requests known. Um, but, but there's times God will stop me in my tracks because he wants to say something. Most of the time, Benjamin, the, the dialogue you're going to get from God to you is going to happen when you're in the Word. So be be a man who's in the Word, studying it, rightly dividing the Word of God, and God will speak to you a lot. And then the things that you pray for, you will know are in the will of God. And of course, in the will of God, we know that we have what we've asked for. So I hope that answers your question. Last question for the day. This was um, from Philippi. says, Pastor, do you have any resources uh, for why Christians believe what we believe? Uh, lots of great resources out there, Philip. Let me give you some some smaller ones first, and I'll graduate to some bigger ones. Um, Lee Strobel has a book called The Case for Christ. Uh, he also has another one called uh, The Case for the Bible. Um, those are, are really good resources. There's uh, 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 books that I think are still in print by Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E, uh, uh, why, why, uh, know what we believe and know why we believe. Um, there is a, 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 a much more scholarly work um, by by Josh McDowell called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, there's a paperback by F.F. F. Bruce, um, the New Testament documents, Are They Reliable? So there's a lot of stuff out there so you can start from the easier to digest and getting all the way up to the the, the more scholarly and more heady reading, but there's some really, really, really good stuff out there. So start with Case for Christ uh, or or um, Know What We Believe or Know Why We Believe by Paul Little. Again, L-Y-T-T-L-E. And then you can graduate to Josh McDowell, the New Evidence that the Man's Verdict. And by the way, all of those books have wonderful bibliographies in them so you can chase down even more stuff. Hey, we are done for today. That means only... 24 hours. Now, 23 hours till Paul is live in studio with us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back tomorrow with Paula. See you.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.